Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Deconstructive Criticism. I am your host, Aaron Flam. First, I'd like to apologize to English-speaking listeners for my English, which is a bit rusty. This podcast, like my stand-up, is normally done in Swedish. Second, I'd like to apologize to my Swedish listeners for this entire episode will be in English. And I know hearing another Swede speaking English is like having someone scratch a piece of chalk across the blackboard of your soul. But please bear with me, because today's conversation was recorded with David Nutt, the British government's former advisor on drugs and director of the research team that took the first pictures of what LSD does in the brain. And he might want to share this with other non-Swedish speakers, so endure for potential English-speaking listeners' sake, and it'll be worth it. But first, some matters of protocol. Remember last episode when I said that whomever listens to this but doesn't support me on Patreon is actively voting for marketing to rule all our lives? Well, some of you seem to have woken up from your political apathy, at least concerning this single issue, and gotten the right to gain entry to the Facebook group. Some of you have written and asked if one can't pay via Swish instead, and of course you can always Swish me money. The number is 0768943737. It is always appreciated, so please do, but it does not gain you entry to the Facebook group. The reason I've decided to differentiate between these two modes of payment is that Patreon is a subscription service that gives me at least the semblance of a faint chance to prognosticate my cash flow, giving me some peace of mind and the ability to provide you with a better service while Swish, which is always welcome at number 0768943737, is a one-time donation as I can't state enough, is more than welcome, provides no predictability whatsoever, forcing me to focus on things that do. This, of course, does not apply to any potential English-speaking listeners. 
I don't expect you to support this podcast since it's normally done in Swedish, unless, of course, you have way too much money and feel it could benefit mankind if you sponsored a comedian in Sweden. It might sound like it wouldn't do much of a difference, but it would make a lot of difference to me. Sweden is a country that lacks all form of humor, so doing comedy here is kind of like being a homosexual activist in Uganda. You run the risk of being stigmatized as well as contract a serious STD. So by all means, if you have more money than sense, seek out deconstructive criticism with Swedish spelling on Patreon and contribute. Maybe not to a better world, but at least a less boring Sweden. I'd also like to thank both the people behind the scenes and you guys who came to see me perform in Halmstad or Kishbari. I enjoyed us very much and I'll definitely call you. But I'm not ready for something steady right now and must move on. So if you live in Umeå and want to see me perform, I'll be doing gigs both Friday the 25th and Saturday the 26th of November. And then I'm in Uppsala on the 1st of December at Nubban with guest appearances by the talented Sandra Ilar, the talented Ahmed Berhan and the boisterous Branislav Pavlovich, whose latest comedy special Veritas is on my YouTube channel as of just a few hours ago. On the 7th of December you can see me in Jönköping where I'll be preaching about the virtues of atheism and then both the tour as well as the season ends in Eskilstuna on December 14 where Sandra Ilar, the soft-spoken loudmouth of Lapland, will once again be joining me in an attempt to christen the natives to the religion of comedy. Tickets for all these events can be found on Biletto or at your local student union. If you live in Stockholm, I can guarantee you that I'll be performing at the season's last T.S. Kaus in the basement of Skala. Come, we will be the first comedy night filmed in virtual reality, at least that I know of. And please come dressed as your favorite superhero or why not your favorite municipal administrator. Either way, the most important thing is that you laugh like crazy because we will all be filmed, both comedians and audience members, and it just doesn't look good if people watching on their VR sets at home later on can see that you're not laughing or wearing, you know, a superhero costume. So come, let's embrace the future of stand-up comedy together. After the last episode with artist Ola Westphalen, quite a lot of you have written to say that my sound editing skills leave a lot to wish for. Words like stereo, mono, equalization and volume were thrown around casually like anyone, in this case me, were supposed to understand what they mean. I will, in my defense, only offer as excuse that the last episode was not intended to be a podcast at all, but an experimental sound art installation piece, and as such, I think it was quite successful. However, I will strive to become a better editor of sound in the future, starting with this episode in pristine mono sound. Volume is also included for your listening pleasure. Before we go any further... I would like to say that hallucinogens are illegal and should therefore not be taken by anybody. But even if they were legal, I don't think they are for everybody, and certainly not all the time. I am not a hippie. I don't believe that world peace would ensue just as soon as everyone dropped acid. Far from it. Psychedelics may have been part of every human culture in almost every time, but there are reasons for the hallucinogenic experience to have been surrounded by restrictions and taboos. Mostly... It has been in the hands of the shaman, the witch, or the priesthood, and even before that, when human tribes were too small to need such fancy social hierarchies, there were times and occasions that were right, and those that weren't. There were rituals to be observed, advice to be asked from spirits, totems to be found, rites of passage, illnesses to be cured, and the dead to talk to. These cultures knew about what modern psychonauts would call set and setting, that there are holy places to do them in, 
and rituals to be observed. For a reason, these drugs are extremely powerful and have profound effects. In the conversation with David, we mentioned briefly the Eleusinian Mysteries. This was a religious festival in ancient Greece that went on regularly for a few thousand years. Anyone could participate. It didn't matter if you were a man or a woman, a citizen or a slave. In these rites, the participants consumed some sort of potion that gave them what they believed were divine visions. But once you had been initiated into the mysteries, you were forbidden to divulge them to those who hadn't gone through it. And in 415 before Christ, there was a scandal involving breaking the rules. A young brat from a noble family was found to have used the potion to party with his friends. Trials, exiles and so on followed. The world's first recorded drug bust, probably. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is that these things were surrounded by rules, as holy things usually are. Still, we need to talk about them. And not only because hallucinogens are having a revival, ayahuasca retreats and microdosing are suddenly much closer to the mainstream. My own interest in hallucinogens came early, mostly, I think, through the Bible. Sure, there were other factors that probably contributed, like my fascination for superheroes, magic, Nietzsche's Übermensch, or transhumanism, but that came later. No, the gateway drug was the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. I so wanted to know where I could get one of those apples that give you insight. To gain the knowledge of the gods sounded quite nice to me as a child. I knew apple was a mistranslation. The original Aramaic word just meant fruit. And since this was before the taxonomy of Carl von Linnea, or any taxonomy, fruit could be practically any plant. And so I read, and that I think in some way led me at 16 to try LSD, far too young. And I'm not saying this goes for everybody, but in a way, I was born that day. The world was just as fascinating and full of beauty as I thought it was, but normally I couldn't see it. For once, my personality didn't get in the way of me, and I know that doesn't sound quite right, especially if you're gifted with a wonderful personality, like the beautiful person you probably are, but my personality is sort of a douchebag, and not having him around for a few hours was such a relief. I could tell you that I also realize that every moment is eternal. Since time and space are the same thing and the universe is infinite, every moment occurs everywhere simultaneously, making them infinite. Unfortunately, we cannot experience it since we are trapped in three-dimensional bodies. Not that I couldn't know this without hallucinogens, intellectually, but this was different. A metaphysical insight, felt in every cell, and also... I could tell you all this, but it wouldn't really be true, because that was also much later on, on psilocybin, magic mushrooms. Either way, I've had some of my most meaningful experiences in life because of them. Personally, I believe them to be the reason for culture, language, religion, but that's just my belief, or as you should rightly think, bias. But before we go on, I want to tie into last week's intro. If you're a potential English-speaking newcomer, or a Swede that just randomly chose this episode and haven't heard the previous one, I said, among a lot of other shit that will probably prove incorrect if you'll just be patient with me, that I thought conservatives and others who believe that Trump will be a new Reagan was kidding themselves. My argument was simply that where Reagan had Star Wars, Trump has nationalism, a wall, and nostalgia. At least Reagan wanted to shoot Mexicans, which he called Russians, from outer space. He was forward-thinking. 
And I think that what we see as a general trend in the West and elsewhere of nationalism is not forward-thinking. On the contrary, it is an escape into an idea of a simpler past. Yes, it seems that the leaders we have chosen has failed to both explain the benefits of globalization as well as mitigate those that felt damaged or left out by it. But what is lacking in the face of immense challenges, climate change, inequality, technology, is vision. Sure, terraforming Mars will keep us busy for a few hundred thousand years at least, if it works, and that's great. I'm all for mistakes, as long as they're new mistakes. But it could be good to have some sort of answer regarding more earthbound problems too. You know, just to keep the raging masses occupied. This lack of vision ties back to the subject of today's episode. Vision is lacking in our view on hallucinogens as well. If only they were legal, they could probably provide a new way of looking at the problem. But unfortunately, they're not. So they can't. It's a real catch-22. Even worse, the consequences have been costly not just in human lives from the general war on narcotics, but in research, medicine, opportunities lost. By now we all know, at least when it comes to research, that it's hypocrisy to allow studies into far more dangerous substances than these. Because what happens when you make a drug illegal is that research into it disappears. That is why the work of David Nutt is so important. He has presented a new model for assessing the harmful effects of drugs and devoted his life to research on addiction and depression. As a researcher and a public figure, he represents a more fact-based approach to drugs. To some, this has made him controversial, but I see him as a person of vision. I met David in the lobby of the hotel he was staying in after holding a lecture in Stockholm. I had booked an interview and been allotted 45 minutes at the shitty time of 8.30 in the morning, and was told he was fully booked for interviews from all major Swedish media outlets for the rest of the day. I grudgingly accepted. See what I do for you? You? Yeah, you? Listening to this? 8.30 in the morning? Are you shitting me? What's the point of becoming a stand-up comedian if you have to get up in the morning? Personally, I think that's worth supporting me on Patreon for. Anywho, as luck would have it, the night before the interview, David's press person called me to tell me that all other journalists had called in sick, except for me and Vice. By now, things like this doesn't really surprise me. Usually... The Swedish media's ongoing failure to report on issues concerning drugs makes me mad as hell. With the second highest death rate among drug users in the EU, 700 people last year, one would think it would be an area of interest. But today it didn't bother me. For once, censorship, which I have encountered many times during my career in Swedish TV and publishing, worked in my favor. It's not that I wish sickness on anyone. It's not that I wish sickness on anyone, but I felt a little happy for once that Swedish media don't naturally cover things that could in any way, shape or form put our policy on narcotics into question. So I quietly thanked the pandemic and got an hour with David at nine instead. I suggest you hear him out. And please, feel free to ignore me. So, so this is not even live. Fantastic. No, no, no. It's not live. It's a it's a podcast. Cool. Do you do you, uh, do you know what a podcast yeah, yeah, is? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, but what's your, what's your audience? So I get a sense of what. Uh, well, uh, I'm guessing. Um, 
anyone who'd like a breather from the oppressive uh, intellectual climate of Sweden for a second or two. So, what, but what, is it a science podcast or is it a book kind of thing? You know, what, what, what are you? Uh, no, I'm a, I'm a stand-up comedian and a political satirist. You're a comedian and a satirist? Yes. Okay, like, oh, right. So you're like Paul Merton in Britain. Uh, well, yeah, maybe. Uh, I, I, uh, this podcast is mainly, it's not supposed to be a funny podcast. It's a oh, podcast oh. where I basically interview people who are in uh, fields that are considered taboo in one way or another. Oh, uh, I turn oh. silly from time to time, but you don't have to. Uh, I see, I see, okay. Uh, but it's supposed to be like a relaxed uh, conversation about things you normally don't hear conversations about in this Ooh. country. Uh, yes, so uh, welcome to uh, Sweden, uh, Professor Nutt. Great to be here. I'm an honorary Swede, you may not know this, but um, I, I have t two grandchildren only, and they both live in Sundsvall. I'm terribly sorry for you, but uh, no, I, I didn't know. My, my next question was going to be, is it your first time in Sweden? No, I, so I'm a, I love coming to Sweden. See my, in fact, I'm on my way to see my grandchildren tomorrow, oh. just passing through Stockholm. So how come they live in Sundsvall? Because my son lives in Sundsvall, and uh, he's with a, a Swedish partner. And um, yeah, he runs a, a restaurant there called Toppen, if I'm allowed to advertise on the radio. Yes, of course you are. <laughs> And this is a uh, this is podcast. You may advertise as much as you want to. <laughs> so, uh, Toppen in Sundsvall. Tup is it Toppen? Yeah, uh, cockerel. Yeah, Tuppen. Toppen. Yeah. Tuppen i Sundsvall ska ni alltså gå till om ni vill äta mat lagad av uh, David Natts son. I'm sorry about that. I just it's good. No, I, did I it properly. Yeah, it's good. Uh, so, um, uh, how come you're in Sweden now? So I'm here now because I was um, asked to give a lecture at the the launch of the uh, Swedish Psychedelic Society or the Swedish Society for Psychedelic Research. I think it's actually very academic and research-based. I gave a talk last night at the Karolinska. Fantastic, over 400 people. It was really amazing. I really wanted to come, but I had to have an MRI, I think it's called. Oh, dear. Uh, is it okay? Are you all right? I don't know yet. All right. But uh, they, they think I might have nerve damage. Oh, From what right. I don't know, I haven't really been exercising or nothing. Well. Do you want to talk about your medicine now? Uh, no, no. <laughs> well, uh, I'm happy to, I because <laughs> it would be. Uh, this is more of an espresso, but it's perfect. Thank oh, you. Okay. That's the water for me. No problem. Oh, thank you. So, just quickly for the listeners in Swedish. So, we sit here in lobby in David Nats Hotel, vi Nortuli, Stockholm, and we have just fått kaffe serverat. Om ni undrar varför det är lite stimmigare än vanligt, jag ska försöka sköta inspelningen så bra som möjligt. Jag hoppas att det går bättre den här gången än det gjort samtliga gånger tidigare. I'm sorry again. I just had to uh, apologize to the listeners uh, for the, you know, the ambience in the sound environment. So listen, important thing when you, when this podcast is, when you, when do you podcast it? Um, in a few weeks, probably. So can you send me a link? Oh, absolutely. I'll send it to my son to make sure he listens. Uh, oh, that too, and you could also spread it in England if you wanted to. Yeah, I'd be pleased. I mean, I do, I've got a lot of Twitter followers, so I'll, I'll definitely do that if you, because it, it'll go obviously with. You won't translate me. You'll be. I'll be in English. Yes. Yes. It's a good. Uh, I think most Swedes speak English. So it's do. not really. A problem. It's one of the pleasures of being here. Yes. So anyway, you're some a. Some of them speak better English than me. <laughs> that's good news for our school system or television. Um, <laughs> 
So um, you're a neuropsychopharmacologist. Very good. Not many people can say that word. Uh, no, I, I actually practiced all last <laughs> night. <laughs> yeah, quite. <laughs> so, and what is that? So I am a, a doctor uh, who studies the effects of drugs in the brain. I'm actually, I, I trained as a neurologist and I switched to psychiatry because psychiatry is so much more interesting. The, same, the, the psyche is a, a much more complex and intriguing phenomenon than the, the brain, the nervous system. So, um, but my research interest is in how drugs affect the brain and how we can use that to improve people's mental health, physical health, neurological health. Have you ever thought about shortening the job title the, to, like, psycho? <laughs> Other people do that for me, yes. yes. Because, you know, psycho is uh, something people know. They, they know what that is. Neuropsychopharmacology is a very slim... The thing about psycho is, of course, it's the film. You can never get away from the Hitchcock film. So, and psycho has got quite a lot of negative connotations, whereas uh, psychopharmacology should be positive. It should be about improving people's brains through drugs. I understand. And, and you were here last night and you gave a lec lecture about this, right? I gave a lecture particularly about psychedelics. I've become very interested in the um, potential of psychedelics to understand the brain and also to become new treatments for brain disorders. Uh, what type of disorders? So we have just finished the first study where we use magic mushrooms to treat uh, the active ingredients called psilocybin. And we use that to treat people with resistant depression, and we had very good impact. Half the people got a single dose. Half the people were well six months later. So depression is clearly one target. Another target is obsessive-compulsive disorder, OCD, where there's been a small trial in America showing a good effect. And there's going to be two big papers published on the 1st of December, two big, the biggest controlled trials ever of magic mushrooms and what we call end-of-life anxiety, when people know they're going to die. This can help them come to terms with dying. So, and then the other area I'm really interested in is addiction. If you go back to history, uh, back before these drugs were made illegal, you see there were six trials of LSD to treat alcoholism. And the effects of LSD are as good as any treatment we have today, maybe better. But we don't use it because the drug's illegal. So there were a few things I would like to ask you. Uh, first of all, this trial with psilocybin, you were one, uh, your research group, right? Yeah. Was one of the first in the world to do brain imaging on people high on magic mushrooms. I think we were the, f we were the first people to do brain imaging on the effects of magic mushrooms, that's right. Uh, when you uh, introduced these results, uh, you said this is for neuropsychiatry what uh, the Higgs boson is to physics. So well, actually that was in relation to the LSD. We were the v absolutely the first people ever to do brain imaging with LSD. Uh, which is sad, really, because um, we've had brain imaging techniques for nearly 30 years. But the, the regulations that control these drugs are so oppressive that, that no one could break through them. But we decided it, we had to do it, so we did it. And I think that's true. I mean, I would defend myself in saying that people spent 50 years looking for the Higgs boson, and they spent 50 years looking for, to understand what LSD does in the brain. And now we have, we've revealed it, and we've revealed remarkable findings. We can now explain why people get hallucinations, why we can explain how people get this sense of what we call ego disillusion, that they don't feel part of their body, they feel as though their bodies. You know, we can actually point to the circuits of the brain, which are 
responsible for these altered states. And, and, and this is a remarkable, I think it's a remarkable discovery. When you're describing fear of dying, and the depression and the OCD, you're actually sort of describing the trifecta that makes up my personality. <laughs> and I've been self-medicating since I was 16. Uh, so Really? Has it helped? You find it helpful? The psilocybin, absolutely, and the LSD too, absolutely. Uh, the other drugs that have come across my tabletop uh, in the course of my life as a stand-up comedian where you encounter quite a few recreational drugs haven't really helped me, but I've had a great deal of fun. I think that's the really important point you make. And this is such a fundamental point, that psychedelic drugs are about changing people for the better. They're not about having fun. But they've got labelled as recreational, which is wrong. You know, they're transformational, not recreational. And that's why they were banned. LSD was banned because it's changed the way American, young American men were voting. They, didn't, they were voting against war and they were voting for peace. And the American society could not cope with that at the time because they were fighting the Vietnam War. I usually say that I was born the day I took LSD. I was 16. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's, that's because good. I think it changed my personality for the better. It made me a more empathic person, a more understanding person. It's interesting. So we have shown that when you give LSD to people in a brain scanner, three weeks later, they've got positive personality changes. They're not even seeking it. We're just look, they're just being a subject. But yet it does change the brain to make people more open and more optimistic. And that's why it was banned because it was changing the way Americans thought about life. And they weren't, they didn't want, they could see that bombing Laos and Cambodia and Vietnam was a kind of pointless thing to do. There was, there's got to be better ways. And of course, you know, but we still haven't learned the lesson. I, I, the, the campaign against the nuclear bomb, the campaign against the war in Vietnam was to some extent fueled by people who took psychedelics, LSD. And I think, you know, maybe, Maybe, you know, rather than drop bombs in Syria, maybe we should use psychedelics to try to change the way people think and come to um, maybe more rational solutions, because certainly blowing people up hasn't really worked. But LSD was developed sort of to be used in war, wasn't it? No, it wasn't. No, so L- the history of LSD was discovered completely accidentally. It was the guy, Albert Hoffman, he was trying to find a better treatment for migraine. And he was working on a migraine substance called ergot, ergotamine, which we still use for migraine today. And he was trying to make a longer-acting version, and he changed the molecule, and he made LSD. And he, he accidentally took it, because he, he was... In those days, there, wasn't, there wasn't, wasn't very automated processes. You had to suck up solutions of drugs to, to pipette them. And he accidentally took it, and it had this profound change of state. His mind changed, he... He describes his 30-minute cycle home as if it took seven hours, and, uh, and, and music became more meaningful and colors changed. So he realized that he'd taken something that changed his brain. And for the first four or five years, in the uh, late 40s, early 50s, it was being used experimentally to, as a therapy for psychiatry, but also to model aspects of psychiatric illness, because some of the experiences are a bit like the hallucinations that some people get in, in mental illness. But it was later like then... Like the psychomimetic, they wanted to know if... That's uh, right, that's right, exactly. So it used to be, I've met old psychiatrists who, 
who were given LSD the first day they started by their boss who said, right, if you're going to talk to patients who've got strange things going on in their brain, you're going to have an experience. And many of them say it was a, it was a profound and, and very positive experience because they, for the first time, they could, they'd gone from being a, an analytical doctor to being someone that could realize that the brain is capable of almost anything. But the problem with LSD came when the Americans, and almost certainly the Russians, uh, the, the Secret Service started to, to see if they could use it for brainwashing. And this was the American um, program called MK Ultra, which unfortunately and strangely, most of the papers on it have disappeared. We don't know why that would have been. And they, they were trying to brainwash. They thought that you could use psychedelics and then kind of in high doses repeatedly to to wipe out people's uh, perceptions and, 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 and re then you could re-implant what you wanted. But in fact, it didn't work. It was kind of pointless. And it created a lot of unpleasant effects because they were giving it to people without telling them. So they were giving it to CIA operatives and seeing what happened when they suddenly became very, very strange. And a lot of the bad uh, trips that people talk about with LSD were caused by people using it, having it given to them without them knowing. I mean, what an atrocious thing to do. When I was in the army, they told us that uh, LSD had uh, been weaponized back in the 50s or something as a gas. So, and it was tasteless and odorless and it didn't have any color. So you could pass through it and then hours later you'd be in a ditch thinking you were a bug. And considering that the set and setting in war is not the best. Yeah, I, I, whether you can vaporize it or not, I do not know. Um, you might possibly be able to have some kind of, I suppose you might suspend it in steam or something, like an inhalation. I don't know about that. But um, certainly, w I, think f I think fighting a war when you're taking LSD might be quite difficult. Although, you know, let's go, but, you know, it's not impossible. I mean, you know, it's going back to your ancestors, the, the, the Vikings. Now, now, the Vikings, when they, f they used to have the berserker, the, you call it berserker, berserk? Yes. And, um, and the, uh, my understanding is that they, when they came to the shores of Britain, they drink a lot of mead, beer and they take their mush mushrooms and they go into this berserk estate where they would then be sort of supernaturally strong and 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 very very immune to suffering you know they would just go become very s extreme warriors so it so I think again it depends on whether you're doing it intentionally yeah. or whether it's being forced on you hmm. well now your research into depression, by the way, this magic mushroom study sounds like one of the most fun studies to be a participant in ever. Well, yes and no, yes and no, because depressed people don't necessarily s get the same positive. What was interesting is that some, some of them did enjoy it, but some of them didn't. Some of them found it was actually, they were put back into a state under the trip where they confronted memories they'd suppressed which were n which were not pleasant memories but by but they were able to deal with them and that's many of them some not many some of them said that, that was the benefit that, that even though it wasn't fun while they did it they were able for the first time to deal with that problem one one man said for the first time I could actually say to my father what a horrible man he was I I never had the courage to do that so in, in that trip he was able to 
just to realize his father was horrible and, and kind of deal with that. And then he felt a lot better afterwards. But did they do this under the surveillance and guidance of a psychiatrist oh, or yes. a psychologist? Let me explain what we do. So it was actually a very complicated study because it, it was a, very much a safety study. No one had ever done it before. So we, the first thing we had to do was give people a, a small test dose, 10 milligrams, just to make because we didn't know whether depressed people could have very bad reactions. And they didn't have, but that was fine. And then we gave them 25 milligrams a week later. And they, we have a, we take, we take our clinical room and we make it slightly more. These are quite low doses, right? Well, they're, I think they're, they're right, the right dose. I mean, they, for someone who's never had a drug before, I think 25 milligrams, that's about five mushrooms. That's the, that would use quite profound. I mean, that we, we got people to score how much out of 10 the effect was, and most of them were scoring about eight out of 10. But of course, you know, they're, as I say, they're naive individuals, never had it before. Um, and there, they, you, have, you have two therapists with them who are there through the whole trip. And they're in a, you know, in a kind of pleasant room with, with some nice lighting to make it kind of mellow and, and chilled and nice music or music. I mean, mostly they like the music. Sometimes they didn't like the music. And, and then they're able to talk about their experience and their past and their future thoughts or not. We don't make them talk. We don't try to drive the therapy. We just, we just let their mind open up under the psychedelic. But are they in a machine at the time? No, no, no. Let me, no, we do not treat them in a scanner. No. So there are two separate experiments. There are experiments where you find out what the drug does in the brain. You give it to a volunteer and you put them in a scanner. And, and those volunteers are always people who had a prior experience of a psychedelic. Because uh, I mean, scanners are unpleasant places. And the idea that you give a psychedelic to someone who's never had it before in a scanner, that would be terrifying. I will tell you that last night I was at the MRI, as I told you, because of my back, and I found it incredibly meditative. Well, see, it's interesting. So some people do and some people don't. I mean, uh, and um, a lot of patients who need MRIs will not have them because they're scared of it's claustrophobic. So often you have to anesthetize them to have an MRI. So... Maybe they just like anesthesia. <laughs> well, no, I think they're just very anxious people. I mean, the first time I went into MR scanner, I mean, you, you're in this metal tube, and you think, are they going to fire me out the end like a cannon? And after about five minutes or so, you begin to relax. So now, of course, if you've been in them a few times, then you know people actually quite like the, We can even get people to fall asleep and do sleep recordings in them. But for patients, particularly ill patients, they can be quite stressful. So we would we do not give the psilocybin to people with depression scanner. We scan, the, we scan them before and after, the days before, the days after, but we never give it to them in the scanner. And do you see a difference in their brain activity before yes. and after? Yes, and this is one of the more interesting aspects of this, because... So that's because when you say, I mean, they have lasting effects from the drug six months after. So it's not just the fact that they had a fun night and can live off of the memory of that night or day. It has biological consequences. Well, it has both. That's the point. Yeah. yeah uh, the people have an experience which they will remember. I mean, you probably remember quite a lot of the experiences you had. And, and especially the positive ones, sometimes the negative ones. So, so they can remember the experience in the trip, but also we think that the brain is changed so that the, the mechanisms which drive the depression become uncoupled. Because depression, one way of thinking about depression is that it's a, a disorder where people get over-engaged with a certain kind of thinking. 
depressed people think negative thoughts. They think that their thoughts that they've made mistakes. They feel guilty for letting other people down. They can even sometimes, in extreme cases, think that they've actually killed people. Even though so, and, and these thoughts, they can't stop. They keep running around in their brain. The, the way psychedelics work is to disrupt the, the centers of the brain which drive that repetitive thinking. So they can, you can break free from it while you're in the trip. And then it seems as if it doesn't come, in some people it doesn't come back. In others it does, but it doesn't come back for a few weeks or months. So, so you can uncouple the brain from the thinking processes for a period. But also, I think the memory of being able to deal with your problems is also quite useful. So I, I see these drugs as giving us a, the best of both worlds, a positive biological change in the brain, which is for the good, but also a positive psychological change. Because what your research showed was that blood flow in the center of the brain decreased when the test subjects were under the influence, so to speak. And where this blood flow decreased is where we would call the personality is, or the control center. The control centers, that's right. So, you know, the, there was this whole adage of, I think it was Timothy Leary said, you know, tune in, turn on, drop out or something, you know. And uh, people thought that, and we thought, that uh, a, dr a drug which gives you sort of all sorts of interesting visual experiences like psychedelics do or very profound changes in your sense of where you are in space, they would be associated with increases in brain function. And we were extremely surprised to discover the opposite. There were localized decreases in brain activity. Uh, and in fact, we were so surprised by the first experiment that we did it again using a different method of measuring activity and in both cases we got the same results and then we thought this must be true and then we started to think how can that be how can turning off the brain turn on the brain and we realized that the areas that were being turned off are these core areas which are the control centers um, because that sounds worrisome well it all depends on how you view the purpose of the brain and I, there's this wonderful quote from Aldous Huxley, who was one of the pioneers of psychedelic research, and, and particularly the pioneers of thinking about the value of psychedelics for society. And he came to the conclusion, after taking mescaline, that the brain was a controlling device for the mind. So he, and and it, what happens is that the psychedelics break that control so the mind can do what it wants to do, things it's not been allowed to do. And we know, and it, the m remarkable thing about that statement made in about 1954 is that now 50 years on, neuroscience tells us he was right. The way we, our brains grow and evolve and develop and learn, it's, it's not about, it's about constraining what we do. It's about making sure that what we do we, is very reliable and consistent and predictable. So as it's only in childhood that you, your brain is sort of fully open. And then the whole processes of growing up, of education, of parenting, of socialization, of university, it's all about forcing you, your brain, your brain becoming more and more trained to limit what you do. To serve a purpose. To serve the purpose, yeah. And that's quite useful in terms of kind of getting you to the right place on time, getting you to sort of do, do the job you've got to do. 
surviving, begetting grandchildren who moved to Sundsvall. Those sorts of things, yeah. But it may not be the, the best thing for mental health. If you overdo that, then you get obsession. And obsessionality is an illness where people, be, their brain becomes over-controlling. And as I've just explained earlier on, some for, depression is also a, a disorder where the brain gets locked into a, a narrow process of thinking. So I think artists and creative people have known always that, that there's more to the brain than, than what we ordinary people use. And they're, capa they, they're capable of, of seeing things in a way none of us do. I mean, Picasso was a genius because he saw things almost like, you know, in some ways, like the way people say they see them under psychedelics. But he didn't take, you know. So that's the difference. And some people... There's uh, no evidence that he didn't take psychedelics. No, I don't know. I don't know whether he did or not. But it's, inter it's very interesting. Or, or some, yeah. Because um. that's, that's the thing when it comes to LSD. Because after, after I took it the first time, I became a more open person. But then I started thinking, but what type of person seeks out this thing, which is so taboo, so hard to come by. I was so young. And it changed me profoundly. So there must have been something in me that drove me to that, almost. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point. And I think it's interesting for two reasons. I mean, it, it's, that's what we would call a, a selection bias in anything we discover when the drug's illegal. Because, you know, it, it takes a certain personality, a certain courage to break the law and do something which might... So, so that... That's, that's a particular problem at the present day where the drugs are illegal. It wasn't so much of a problem in the 50s and 60s when they were legal and people used them and it was easier to use them. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. But still, there is a, a lot of people don't want to open their minds. And it's a really interesting question. Could they open their minds? The, and people say to me, well, if you made LSD legal, everyone would be tripping all the time. And I say that's absurd, because most people don't want to trip all the time. People, most people want to perhaps do it occasionally, maybe only once or twice in their life, because the effects are profound, and they don't necessarily need to do it more. Um, but we, don't, we really don't know. We'll never know. We'll never, we'll never be able to just take people off the street and say, we're going to see if LSD makes you a better person. It's, there's always going to have to be a volitional, a willing element to that. So personality factors like desire to change, like uh, uh, you know, exploration and novelty, you know, those things are always going to be a factor. Because you said a lot of creative people usually show signs of uh, some of the perspectives you can gain from taking an hallucinogen. But... 
and your research show that control centers break down. So when the control centers break down, uh, the other parts of the brain start communicating with each other directly instead of going through the central hub, right? Exactly. That's a extre- I couldn't have said it better myself. And one way of thinking about it, it is like, it's like an or- your brain is like an orchestra. It's a complicated mixture of different parts like the different instrument groups. And normally the conductor's there driving the orchestra to play exactly the way the, or- the conductor wants it. Swing. And then you kill the conductor or put him yeah. to sleep and suddenly it's jazz. Exactly. Absolutely. That's exactly right. And then the... Then the inst- the, the, and it, some people say it's horrible, it's noise. And other people say, wow, that's liberating. This is something very novel and creative. Because what happens is your brain is constructed to make you survive and get children. And so it only looks for things that it needs to see. Yes, right. The, yeah, there's this wonderful description that actually Huxley used. His book, The Doors of Perception, which is the description of his psychedelic experiences, the title of that book comes from the writings of an English artist called William Blake. And William Blake was a, a visionary artist and poet. And uh, he wrote the words, he wrote the book called Jerusalem, which is the song that the, that the British anthem. You know, uh, I know, he wrote the, the poem called The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, and the line That's that right. Huxley That's used uh, for his book is, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is infinite. Right. Exactly. And the great th- but the thing about Blake, being a, vision, being a visionary, I mean, he, he, could, see, he could see things that, that, that his compatriots couldn't see, and he realized, and this is the Blake quote, he said, Man <coughs> has locked himself up as in a ca- as if in a cavern, so he sees all things through the narrow chinks of a cavern. So it's like you're in a cave, and, you're, and all men's human see is this is narrow bit of light out of the cavern. But if you liberated your brain or your mind from being locked up, then you could see everything. And that's what Huxley said. Huxley said psychedelics they stop the brain being able to control the mind. And well, I love that quote of Blake because it, because it not is right in terms of explanation, but it's also right. Three hundred years before, we knew the neuroscience, so it, it was absolutely right. The brain constrains the mind to see what it wants you to see, and more than that, you or I might look through a chink of our cavern and we might see well, you know, a nice hotel room or a. The sun or clouds or snow. But when a depressed person looks through his chink, they look at the fires of hell. They see souls burning. And when an addict looks through their chink, they see you know, a bottle of vodka or they see a syringe of their hair. So what you see, you see very little. And what you see can be extremely destructive. So because... I happen to believe that people who seek out these kinds of experiences, and I've never been a hippie, uh, even though I started out young, uh, because I don't think that these these substances are meant for everybody. Do you understand? I and, understand. And when you read uh, Leary or, um, for instance, McKenna or yeah. Rook or Wasson, they always come... Yeah. I've been on the prowl for... Uh, for most part of my life. Uh, well 
Yeah, I know. I, I, I saw one of your lectures online the other night, and you were referencing, uh, I think it's uh, Rook that went in to find out what the... How would you pronounce that in English? Elysian, the, the Elysian Mysteries, yeah, the, the Greeks. The ancient Greeks used to go... When the, uh, when the mushroom and um, fungus season was about, they used to go out of, into, the, into the, f- the meadows north of Athens and they used to drink alcohol and eat ergot, which is like LSD, and take mushrooms. And they'd have a couple of weeks of a sort of special celebration, a bit like the young people now might go to a festival for a week. And they would, they would use alcohol and psychedelics to change the way they felt about everything. And then, and, and then they go back and they use those learnings to do the things that Greeks did, like you know, build democracy and write poems and create, create plays, which we still see 3,000 years on. I mean, it, you, know, it, it, you could argue that, you know, that, that the use of these drugs has actually been central to the development of the Western culture. I mean, a lot of, you know, I mean, I would argue that it'd be central to culture. I think, yeah, and I think. Period. I think, well, yes, I think it's an interesting question. I think the, um, I mean, I don't, people, there are people, clearly artists, who can experience that experience without drugs. But certainly, you know, for many people, some drugs are the only things that's going to do it. But, but that's the point with the Elysian celebrations, right? That, that there was a special time of year. And you'd have to be eligible. Anyone could be eligible, but you have to prepare and yeah. participate. And you weren't allowed to talk to bu- about it to anyone outside the mysteries who have, hadn't experienced it. So they knew that set and setting was important, and it wasn't for everybody, and not every time or all the time. Yeah, no, quite, quite. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's not only right. I think that is that's kind of that's correct, but it's also right. I think. I, I don't see... That's why I don't agree with Leary. I think Leary's idea that the world would be fundamentally different if everyone took LSD is probably wrong. I mean, it would probably be a bit better, but I don't. I think a lot of people would actually find it unpleasant, probably, and, not, and resist it. So it's, it was the wrong approach. I think the approach of using it to promote well-being and certainly to help people with problems of over-constraint of their brain, like addiction, that's the way forward. Yeah. So uh, since uh, I sometimes suffer from depression and most notably OCD, as, yeah. Um, so I've been using this. Has this been my body's way of telling me just that I, I need this, or it's not like I do it every day? I do it like once every three years. Yes. Well, I mean, there are some interesting case reports of people you know, getting periodic recoveries from OCD. I think I think that, that to my mind is exactly how w- it's very likely we're going to end up using these drugs like this because there's clearly the process of cons- the brain constraining the mind is is a powerful one. <laughs> it's you know it's been there ever since we've been Homo sapiens, and it works. Most of us do end up being very much as society wants us to be, and obviously the, the collateral damage is that that process of constraining the mind tips over to OCD or depression and if we can just relieve that for a month or a year by the intermittent use of, of psychedelic perfect sense because depression is a huge problem in today's western world isn't it depression is the largest cause of disability in the western world absolutely and uh, suicide is one of the a million people a year commit suicide 
And when LSD research and psychedelic research started in the well, like early 1900s, there were good hope that some of these substances would be we would be able to use them. And now there's been like a moratory. Is that how you would Moratori- say it? Yes. Moratory on, on research for 60 years now? Or? Correct. So the, the basically, the, the, the when the United States decided to ban LSD in 1967 because, of, because, it cha- because people were opposing war as a result of taking LSD, uh, they not only banned LSD, they banned all psychedelics, even mushrooms. Uh, some other countries didn't go so far, but every country banned LSD. And uh, because the U- uh, basically United Nations and the WHO were controlled by the USA, so LSD and psychedelics have pretty much been banned in 197 countries for 50-odd years. I think it's the worst censorship of research in the history of the world. In the history of the world? I can only think of one other example of an enduring ban of important research, and that was when in 1616 the Catholic Church banned the telescope because they didn't want people to, dis- to repeat the discoveries of Copernicus. He discovered that the, the Earth was not the center of the universe. It went around the sun, and the Catholic Church did not like that. And so they, they uh, banned his writings for 150 years. But that only applied in Catholic countries. So northern European scientists like Tycho Brahe in, in, in Denmark were able to carry on studying the planets. Whereas the ban on psychedelics has lasted over 50 years, and um, the amount of research we could have done is much greater than could have been done 150 years back in 1616, because there were very few scientists then. There are hundreds, thousands of scientists now, and the techniques we have of looking into the brain are so much more powerful. I mean, LSD, before LSD was banned, there was one brain study two subjects with using EEG and, uh, and then that's it and then we waited 50 years for the next brain study and, and all the results when, before they banned it were promising into the re- in the research field so to speak yes the people who were using this particularly LSD but also psilocybin more laterally for therapy the, if you, the people that went in to use it as a therapy found good results there were studies which went in to, to, to show it didn't work there was a, a study which, where they just chained people to the bed and gave them LSD and said it didn't work. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, that's, it's actually immoral that that could have happened because people knew that, you know, they knew it wouldn't work. They knew it would be terrifying, and they, they did it to say it didn't work. It was, a, it was a corruption of science. So, But isn't that similar to what we're doing with SSRI now? We're just prescribing them without, uh, like, giving any therapy on the side? We're just, like... Take some pills. The SSRI question is an important, and and I want to just take you through that because I'm quite a fan of SSRIs. So SSRIs do so. SSRIs enhance serotonin in the brain. And by the way, you've got to remember this was a Swedish invention. I did not know that. Know that? No. Most people don't realize that the first SSRI was developed by Astra. It was called Zimelodine, and it was a revolution. Can I tell you a bit about it? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I'm I qualified in medicine in 1975, and I started working as a psychiatrist in uh, about 1978. And at that time, we were using drugs called tricyclic antidepressants, drugs like amitriptyline and imipramine. And we were watching people die when they took an overdose. 
It would. I mean, uh, in 19, 1975 or so, when I started, over a weekend, we would admit to a big, a normal hospital in London, we would admit 10 people who would be in intensive care from taking an overdose of amitriptyline or other tricyclics because they're so toxic. Okay. And then along came zimelidine. And this drug was so different because it not only did you not know people were taking it because they didn't get a dry mouth and blurred vision and constipation, but also they couldn't kill themselves in overdose. So the SSRIs were a revolution in safety. There was no question. And we didn't have people coming in. We didn't have deaths anymore because, because people weren't, you know, you can't kill yourself in overdose. So, th so these were enormously safe drugs. So they replaced a very toxic drug with a safe drug. They weren't any more powerful. They may be less powerful as antidepressants. But they did, um, they were very safe. So that was the first thing. Second thing to say about these drugs is that they're not brilliant at getting people out of depression. The, and if you do psychotherapy, and I'm a total supporter of psychotherapy, and if you do the two together, they work, that's the way to optimize the effects. Because psychotherapy also is not good at getting people out of depression. You couldn't, the effect of psychotherapy and depression is relatively low. You could not, if you had to go, if, if therapists had to go through the same rules as drug companies, you'd never license psychotherapy for depression because it's not strong enough. But anyway, you can get people out of depression with SSRIs, ideally with psychotherapy too. But the real strength of these drugs is that they protect against depression in the long term. So people who have repeated depressions, the SSRIs, because they enhance serotonin, are protective against depression. So the really interesting question for us is... Do SSRIs in the long term change the brain in the same way as psychedelics do to protect against depression? And that's what we're trying to study in our next study. Your first study, by the way, I should mention, was Kickstarter financed, wasn't it? No, the, the, the LSD imaging study uh, was crowdsourced, yes, that's right. That's fascinating. And you got in over £50,000. Correct, we did, yeah. Because one of the real problems of working with an illegal drug is that governments make make the drugs illegal and they don't want to <laughs> they don't want to give scientists money to show that they were wrong so we have never managed to get government money to work on the science of these drugs but we did get government money to work on the therapeutic study the depression study back to SSRIs I, I've been offered plenty of times uh, and I've always turned it down because I yes because you know, once a year or once every three years, with some regularity, I do a strong hallucinogen trip for maybe a weekend or so. And uh, since that works, I didn't want to take something that might not work or might interfere with that. And I think what, you're, that, what you say is fascinating, because that's the model we are... I think that is the alternative model, exactly. But, you know, you're a, a case of N of 1... We would like to see whether we can show that that works in uh, the normal population. And it, it's going to be a really, really interesting question because, it will, you know, we can't, you can't guarantee that everyone's like you. I don't <laughs> in the least expect everyone to be. I hope that people aren't like me. <laughs> well, but the point we made earlier on about you're quite uh, thoughtful and you were... You know, you were a bit adventuresome and prepared to take. You know, you've come to a fascinating solution to your problems, which other people have. Uh, other people have, but not. But when I say to my colleagues, you know, maybe this is what perhaps we will be giving people psilocybin 
once a year, like they go, like like the Greeks, you know, once a year, you'll instead of going to Ibiza and dancing all night on crystal meth, you'll you'll go to a Kos and sit on a beach and and, and relive the Elysian mysteries and with a psychedelic and come back with your depression lifted or your OCD. Lifted. I think this idea of periodic treatment is a very appealing one. So that's what that's what we'll work towards. Maybe it won't work for everyone, but hopefully it will work in some. I've tried microdosing too, and um, it has uh, certain effects for the first nine days. So, um, can you tell me a bit more about that? I mean, yeah, sure. Uh, no, I uh, basically I tried to approximate twenty-one point five micrograms. Oh, of LSD. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because people are microdosing LSD, they're microdosing ayahuasca, they're microdosing psilocybin. Okay. So should we explain what a microdose? So microdosing is giving a dose which is sub psychedelic, and the idea is that you might get the uh, the the benefits in terms of mood and well-being without having the psychedelic experience. And I, that's I, what I found exactly. Right. So so here you're giving a. A drug, I presume you take it. You take it sort of every day, every other day, or what? Uh, every day for nine days, and after that, the effect sort of just. So, so it's a different model, um, and I'm open-minded about it. I mean, clearly, it's become an extremely popular thing, uh, and people are using it to help make them feel better, less stressed. But also, some people are using it because they think it makes them more creative. There's this talk about people trying to get the next generation of technology and. Silicon Valley in the States are using microdosing to, um, to try to improve their creativity. Very hard to prove, but on the other hand, it seems to be pretty safe. So, so I, I, I'm, the biggest danger of microdosing is that you'll get arrested for having, having the drug in your pocket, in which case it doesn't matter whether you've got a microdose or a, ma- a megadose, it's still illegal. This is true, and also I think that if you're going to have like a breakthrough idea or a, an, a super big, applicable for the rest of humanity insight on hallucinogens, maybe you were obsessed with this subject before you took LSD, and then the LSD just helped you see it in a new light or something. It's not like you can be anyone, take LSD, and then invent a clean, free energy source in, if you've never studied physics. Exactly, and I think that's right. It's, a, it's about the prepared mind, isn't it? You know, LSD isn't going to turn anyone into Picasso or Einstein, but if you've, got, if you've got a severe depression, it might get you out of that, and then microdosing might help protect you from relapsing. So how is the research uh, milieu in Sweden for studying hallucinogens and psychedelics? Well, you've got some of the, you know, you've got some great brain scientists. You've got um, uh, a history. There's a history of, uh, of, of Swedish psychedelic research before it was banned. I mean, you, you, like all other countries, did what the Americans told you, which was ban it, um, uh, based on their lies and misrepresentations. So there's no research going on at the moment? But here in Sweden, there's no research. But you've got, I met last night a remarkable group of talented young people. Actually, I was impressed. I mean, there's, there's a, it, this new organization. Is, you, they've got a lot of quality psychiatrists and neuroscientists together. I think, I think you can actually do some f- really good stuff here. And a couple of other things to say. The thing, great thing about... I mean, Sweden's a fascinating country for, for a number of reasons. But one is that you have this very open-minded, I would call extremely sensible approach to health, which is that you collect, you collect data. You have these registers... And some of the most interesting findings in relation to 
to mental health and, and medicines have come from these Swedish registers because in, in, in essence the whole of the country is an experiment you know we can look at all the people in theory we could ask everyone have you taken LSD and then we could see whether they were less likely to go to hospital or more you know I mean and uh, so it's a quite good description of Sweden an ongoing social experiment yeah but I think I actually I'm, I'm impressed I, I certainly I think you if I could speak Swedish and it wasn't so expensive I'd probably live here <laughs> but but get back to your serious question um, there's a lot of opportunity I mean Sweden can ask questions that other countries can't ask uh, so I think but we have very harsh drug laws you do, yes this, I find it's a bit paradoxical I mean you Because you are rational about alcohol, I love your alcohol policy. You have a, a sensible, rational. You have well, a what that we can't buy wine and beer in the supermarket. Absolutely, and that is very rational because that reduces the harms of alcohol. In Britain, we used to have that policy, and when we liberated ourselves from from that policy, we found a 300% increase in deaths from alcoholic liver disease in 10 years. So. There's no question. The Swedish model of alcohol control is the best for health. It may not may not be the best for entertainment, but it's the best for health. You've got a massively clever model of snus for tobacco smoking. You know, you you have eliminated lung cancer in this country from smoking. I mean, you know, you this is this is one of the greatest social health experiments in history. So I don't understand why you have such illogical attitudes to other drugs. I think it's a moral thing, and also when Swedes find an idea, they really go into it. You know, they, I mean, so if someone says, "Well, drugs are bad, and if we just get rid of the drugs, everyone will be uh, eternally happy," it will almost be like a blissful, constant euphoria that very much resembles an orgasm. Uh, and we've tried this now for 60 years, and the results has so far not been. Uh, Very good. You know, I was hearing yesterday that you have a remarkably high level of deaths from opiates compared with most countries, pro rata to the population, because you don't have treatment policies, which I find, I find. We odd. don't believe in harm reduction. Yeah, and that is that is that is that's illogical. So you you harm reduce alcohol. You harm reduce tobacco, but you don't harm reduce heroin. What does that make? It doesn't make any sense at all. Well, it makes uh, some small... But first of all, you can't make... We tried making alcohol completely illegal. It yes. doesn't work. It's the drug of choice for most Swedes. I think second in place is amphetamines, uh, which we had a huge uh, wave of in the 60s, 70s, where if for a short while it was actually legal. Oh, really? Yes, and that yeah. caused some of the reaction that... Yeah. You know, so so uh, there's been experiments since we're forgotten now. But so you couldn't make those illegal. But then you could say that other drugs were even more dangerous uh, because that's basically a racist cultural thing, right? Like we're not that afraid of our own drugs, but your drugs seem pretty scary to us. Well, of course, the hate it, it, drugs like psychedelics and cannabis are are, sc are scary because you say people generally. Older members of society and politicians haven't come across them, and also they're easy to be hostile to the users because often the users are young people who don't vote. So, so they're kind of the you know it's a, it's a kind of it's a way of getting cheap votes because you can say oh we're doing something against these bad people. It's the problem is you deny the therapeutic value of these drugs, and 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 that is that I find that that's really that's that's immoral. I mean. I, If LSD is the best treatment for alcoholism, 
imagine how many Swedes' lives could have been saved. I mean, you know, you you have, you know, you've got a good alcohol policy, but you still got tens of thousands of alcoholics in this country who are dying as a result of alcoholism. If LSD could cure them, well, then why not use it? Your question is good, and there are many answers to it, and I think this war on drugs will go on for another. Um, can I ask you a quick question about the election in the United States? Because it might be seen from certain perspectives as a loss to the world and the Americans. But on the other hand, marijuana won in four states. I know. What's, this is uh, very interesting, isn't it? The, um, it's, uh, and it's interesting, the states that legalized marijuana didn't vote for Trump. And I don't know whether that's... <laughs> I don't know whether that's kind of a, a kind of warning for what's... Because it's impossible to know what Trump's view is on anything because he doesn't know. So, you know. But anyway, the good news was that, that California and Massachusetts, the two of the most influential states in America, have legal marijuana. California is the sixth biggest economy in the world, legal marijuana. So, so we are really in a position now where we can say that, that marijuana is, um, is essentially in important countries it will be legal in Canada within a, another few months we it's a you know there is no reason why we should have hysterical anti-cannabis policies in my country or in your country and, uh, and the, the really important message is that up till now the US government has decided world drug policy it can no longer do that because it cannot if it cannot control its own people it certainly can't doesn't have a legitimacy to control the rest of the world and that, 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 that's quite an interesting change because I suspect it'll mean that the U.S. will pull out of organizations like the U.N. and the WHO, which will mean that there will be opportunities for other countries then to say, we're going to have our policies independent of the U.S. And I think that that'll be good. That'll allow... Because many... Con- you know, Swedes are very law-abiding. If the U.N. says cannabis is an illegal drug, even though it shouldn't be, the Swedes would prefer to obey the law and stand up for science, and the same for Brits. But if um, if the UN hasn't can no longer kind of maintain this this kind of pretense because it isn't supported by the US, then then I think there's an opportunity for change, and the US won't oppose it. I mean, just just it's fascinating. So Canada, can I tell you a few words about Canada? Yeah, sure. So, so I, I lived in Canada for a while. All right. Okay. So the new president, Curry, he's called Prime Minister Trudeau. His father wanted to legalize cannabis when he was prime minister, and the Americans told him not to, and he he wasn't allowed to because America said no, and they would have gonna, they were going to put all sorts of sanctions against him. Now, the son can legalize cannabis, and America won't, doesn't care because it knows it, you know it has no right. It can if it can't control Oregon and California, how the hell can it expect to control? So we th- this is a fundamental change in the in in the way countries are going to be allowed to make their own drug laws. Because you were on some sort of board in, uh, in Britain, right? Uh, a government board? I was the, yes, I was the government's chief drugs advisor, yes. Yes, that's uh, it's quite an impressive title. And in this capacity, you decriminalized marijuana. <laughs> no, so we reduced the sanctions against marijuana. but that created Declassified? We redu- yes, we downgraded it. We made it less we reduced the penalties for possession and use. And this was a popular reform, I take it? Uh, well, it was popular by the people, but the press hated it, and the politicians hated it, and it became a complete political football. And eventually it got me sacked, and eventually it got regraded. And uh, because you also published, like, a chart 
you, scale you, of harm charts, yes. It, where you show which drugs are most harmful, both to society and individuals. Right. And that chart showed that cannabis was... No, heroin was the most... Sorry, in Britain, alcohol was the most harmful drug overall because the vast damage that alcohol does to society. I mean, all the kids who were born with alcohol um, brain damage, you know, fetal alcohol syndrome, alcohol is implicated in Britain um, in over half of all domestic violence, half of all child sexual abuse, half of all road traffic accidents, half of all admissions to hospital. The economic and social burden of alcohol makes it the most harmful drug. Cannabis was down halfway, and the mushrooms at the very bottom. There's almost no harm from the mushrooms. So which are the three least dangerous drugs for individuals or society taken as a whole? As a whole, uh, the three least dangerous drugs will be magic mushrooms, ecstasy, and in our study, cat, which is, you probably don't use it here, but chewing, sort of chewing coffee. Well, I don't use it here, but uh, th- we have immigrants from Somalia and Yemen, and they use it. Yeah, yeah I mean, it is like drinking, you know, chewing cats a bit like taking a double espresso. Yeah, I've heard. I tried to score some when I was in Israel because apparently the big immigration from Africa, they've started like uh, making some sort of apple juice out of cut and they were selling it in kiosks, but I couldn't find any. So, yeah. Uh, they said uh, drinking it was like taking a Red Bull and two Ritalins. Okay, well that might be quite a lot of ephedrine in the cat. Yeah, I don't know. It's not very stable in solution. Anyway, yeah, you probably got to get it fresh, made up. <laughs> that was why they uh, boiled it down with apple juice. There was some acid uh, in the apple. Okay, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, okay. Uh, I, I wasn't being on chemistry when I was a young child in school, but then s- for some reason my interests grew. Uh, a practical <laughs> chemist, as opposed to a lab chemist. Yes, chemist I, of the mind. I guess you could call it that. And uh, just uh, one final question, because you compared in a British magazine before. Oh, yeah. Right. Yes, precisely. You said something about that people should stop using ecstasy and start smoking horses. <laughs> yeah, we see. One of the, I find the whole debate about drugs is a, is a peculiar. As a scientist, I cannot understand why politicians can't accept that alcohol is a drug. And uh, and whilst I was advising the government, we we, we were we, eventually we persuaded them persuade to allow us to review the harms of ecstasy because they didn't want us to because of course they knew they were that it was over it was a too high a class and I started thinking how can we what's an appropriate level of harm for a drug to be controlled at all I mean you know is it one death a year or is it you know how, how can what is the pro you know what's the dangerous level because we were we, we, you know we banned many drugs that haven't even killed anyone just yeah. we ban them because people use them, and I thought, well, what other things that do do people do that are potentially harmful? And and I saw a patient, a patient who'd fallen off a horse, smashed her brain, changed her personality. The sort of kind of things that people say drugs do, and I started researching brain damage from uh, horse riding, and I discovered it's actually quite common, and a lot of deaths, and I and but of course people who ride horses know that. If you ask any horse rider, they almost all know someone that's died riding a horse or know of someone. But they say, why do you ride horses? And they say, oh, we love it. And I thought, is it addictive? Well, it is. Horse riding is addictive. So I invented this syndrome called equacy, equine addiction syndrome. And I compared the harms of equacy with ecstasy. 
And there's a, ecstasy comes out rather well. I mean, you know, the problems with horse riding are that other people get killed because people fall their horses or their horses run into cars. Uh, and also the methane production is very bad for global warming. Horses pump out lots of methane. Whereas ecstasy, so, you know, there's, you can, the way you look at it... You know, more people actually die from horseback riding than from ecstasy. Uh, in Britain, that is true, yes. And I imagine it's true in Sweden too. I would bet. I bet more people here do horse riding than ecstasy. I don't know, but it's quite... I, I don't know either. In Britain, it more do, yes. I mean, in, in America, it's several thousand deaths a year falling off horses. So let's ban horses. It's easier to ban a horse because they're much easier to spot. Yeah. You know, you, can, you can't get a horse into a club easily, can you? But this wasn't a, a popular suggestion. Well, it's been my, it's been my uh, most downloaded paper ever. So people are fascinated. And it's, of course, it was a thought piece. The government hated it. The government went hysterical. They said I was, a, I was, an in, I was insulting people who died from riding horses. Well, maybe they should get off their high horses. <laughs> Indeed, they should. But it, it, it highlighted this terrible paradox, and this is a really important thing to finish on. When you talk to politicians about drugs, they, uh, you have a conversation that goes like this. You cannot... The Home Secretary rang me up and said, you cannot compare ecstasy with horse riding. Why not? Because one's illegal. But, but, but why is it illegal? Because it's harmful. Well, don't we need to compare harms to see if it should be illegal? You can't compare an illegal... Once something becomes illegal, politicians cannot think logically about it. And that is why we have to be extremely careful. But that's what the drug laws we have seen for the last 50 years. There has been no logical debate. The drugs are illegal, we just don't talk about them. The drugs are illegal, we don't talk about them. We, and that's why we've got to be very cautious. Making things illegal means that often that there's an in, enduring impact and you can't re, revisit that question. Thank you, David Nutt, uh, for uh, participating in this conversation. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. And See, do it again sometime. I hope so, and enjoy the rest of your stay. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Deconstructive Criticism. I have been Aaron Flam. Until next time.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.